Um, the Russian military invaded Ukraine. I'm not 100% aware of all of the details of the historical events that led up to this particular conflict and, like, you know, what the backstory is. And I'm not saying those details aren't important, because they most definitely are. I can post links to some of the resources and articles and podcasts where I've gotten some information on it. But today, I think we should focus on, like, geopolitics 101 sort of stuff. Because the thing is, us socialists, this is not the first war of this type that we've seen, and it's not going to be the last. You know, I was alive when Iraq and Afghanistan were invaded. I know a lot of my audience members might not have been. And long after this conflict is over, unless we overthrow capitalism first, knock on wood, there's going to be other wars like it. So this is, unfortunately, at this point in human history, these conflicts are just part of how capitalism functions. And I'm not saying that to, like, diminish the suffering that people in Ukraine are experiencing right now. I'm not trying to say, oh, well, other people have to deal with it, too. I'm saying is we have to be able to put what we see in its context and we have to be able to look for patterns so that we can come up with the best plan of how we should respond to protect human life and to further our long-term goal of putting power in the hands of working class people. So the term we're going to use for this is imperialist war. We talked about imperialism in the first of my Star Wars videos that I made. Basically, when a capitalist country that's reasonably economically developed and reasonably wealthy gets to a certain size, gets to a certain level of economic advancement, the capitalists of that country, they hit a brick wall. They get to this point where they've exploited all of the possible niches in the market and all of the resources that can be tapped into. And if they want to continue to grow and be profitable, they have to push outward and they have to take control of foreign markets, foreign labor forces, foreign resources, and foreign land. And there's a couple different ways they can do that. Um, the most preferable way that they like to do it nowadays is economically. Capitalists from rich countries will buy up all of the means of production in poor countries so that all the profits from production in that poor country go to the rich country. Or they trap the poor country in cycles of vicious debt um, with like loans from like the IMF and the World Bank. And the term that they use for that is neo-colonialism. But, you know, they can also do it the old-fashioned way by direct military occupation or direct political control. The imperialists can do that in a sneaky way through backroom deals and bribes and assassinations and espionage. Uh, that's what the CIA is for. Or brute force works too a good deal of the time. And, you know, you can have a direct, like, military occupation, like a direct invasion and occupation and install, like, a puppet government. The example that should come to mind for all Americans is you have Iraq sitting there filled with sweet, delicious, creamy, chocolatey petroleum oil. And it's, it just looks so yummy. And mean, old, nasty Saddam Hussein isn't letting American capitalists have any of it. 
And so the U.S. military invades, they get rid of Saddam, and then they turn the Iraqi oil fields over to U.S. corporations. Or, you know, you could invade Afghanistan for the resources and minerals in the mountains, and let's be real, the heroin. And sometimes it's not just for resources. Sometimes it's also to get rid of a political regime who's, you know, maybe going against the agenda of the imperialist country, or they want to control that particular territory because it's strategically important, um, which is part of the motivation, once again, for invading Afghanistan. But when we have that like invasion, that invasion and occupation, we call that an imperialist war. And sometimes it's not just a rich country trying to exert control over a poor country. Sometimes it's also multiple rich countries fighting with each other to try to jostle for control over territory and resources and market share. For example, World War I and World War II. The imperialist governments, they never say the true reason why they're doing these wars because they know that if people knew the true reason, they would never support it. So they make up bullshit like, oh, uh, freedom, equality, uh, uh, um, they're bad there, and uh, the guy who lives there is a dictator. Or, our soldiers are just there to keep the peace. And, you know, all sorts of other bullshit that I cannot believe people swallow in the year of our Lord 2022. So what could be motivating this imperialist war specifically? Well, there are two regions in Ukraine, in the east, that are heavily populated with Russian speakers. Ukraine is not like a homogenous country. It's not like everybody is Ukrainian and everybody is the exact same type of Ukrainian. In these two regions, there is a sizable separatist movement that wants to break away from Ukraine and join Russia. I don't necessarily know for sure like how popular these separatist movements are or what their class character is, you know, whether it's supported primarily by working class people or by your more obnoxious reactionary types, but the movements do exist. So the Russian government could be going in there so that they can secure those regions and then gain access, of course, to the markets, the labor, the resources, and the land of those two regions as well. Another motivator might be that Ukraine is seeking to join NATO. They've flirted for a long time with the idea of joining NATO. And so once again, you have that motivation of the imperialist country to control the smaller country and to get rid of a political regime that is inconvenient for the ruling class of the imperialist country. And we also can't dismiss the influence of ideology. Sometimes uh, the leaders of imperialist countries, they start the war to prove how big and strong and tough that imperialist country is, and also to prove how big and strong and tough they are as leaders. This is to play into the ideology of nationalism. And nationalism, it's extremely useful for the ruling class because it allows the ruling class of, of a particular country to convince the workers of that country, hey, actually, you and I um, are the same and we should have solidarity together because we happen to be born on the same patch of dirt. It inspires false consciousness. You know, it confuses the workers about who their true friends and enemies are. 
And sometimes, yeah, the leaders of countries do start imperialist wars when they fear that their popularity might be slipping or like maybe there's an election coming up. And sometimes this is just a cynical ploy to try to, you know, win over the support of the population. But sometimes the leaders do genuinely believe that nationalist ideology themselves. Another thing that we need to be careful about is we need to be very specific about who is doing the invading whenever we discuss an imperialist war, whether it be Russia invading Ukraine or United States invading Afghanistan, etc., etc., Because when I hear the phrase, Russia invades Ukraine, a part of me imagines 145 million odd men, women, and children marching across the Ukrainian border like a Black Friday shoppers, and they're all armed with like hunting rifles and baseball bats and cast iron skillets. But no. From what I'm seeing in the news, it looks like those 145 million odd people are mostly just staying home and going about their lives. And the only people doing the actual invading are professional soldiers. You know, just like I was talking about in my 9-11 video, eight-year-old me was not called to the front when, quote-unquote, America invaded Afghanistan, you know? And that seems like a kind of silly and obvious point to make, but... Once again, we need to be really clear about who the political actors are in this particular story, like who's doing what and who's motivated by what. Because here's the thing. If I were to say Russia invades Ukraine, well, the thing is, like, Russia, quote unquote, Russia doesn't actually exist. Um, Neither really does Ukraine or, quote unquote, the United States or, quote unquote, China or England or Nigeria, like none of those countries, if you think about it, really exist. Yeah, they definitely exist as patches of dirt on the surface of the earth with lines drawn around them. And the people who live there definitely exist. But the only thing that really unites those people within that patch of dirt is the fact that they live on that patch of dirt and the fact that they're all subjected to the authority of the same state. Like, that's the only thing that unites all of Russia together. That's the only thing that really unites all of Ukraine together. So when we say Russia does something, we're talking specifically about the government most of the time. Because no country on Earth acts as this singular cohesive unit that acts as one. And certainly the people of a particular country are not united in their material interest. Like your average person in Russia is not going to benefit from this war one iota, not a single iota. Even if the Russian military manages to completely win the war without suffering serious diplomatic international consequences, still any wealth that Russia brings in from their occupation of Ukraine, you know, that's not going to go to your average Russian person. It's going to go to the capitalists who are exploiting that new territory. It's going to go to the quote-unquote oligarchs. Of course, you know, we tend to call them oligarchs when we're talking about Eastern Europe, but all capitalist countries are oligarchies, all of them, including the one you live in, dear viewer. 
in all of the divisions in the United States, those exist in Russia too. Like their politics is just as complicated as ours. And they often have like the same cast of characters too. Like they have their fascists and their conservatives and their liberals and their communists. You know, they're young people and they're old people and all of that. Ukraine is the same way. It's not this unified, cohesive entity that acts as a single mass. If you say, well, we stand with Ukraine, okay, what do you mean when you stand with Ukraine? Do you mean you stand with every single person who lives on that patch of dirt? Because I would say that's probably not a very good idea, since uh, a lot of people on that patch of dirt are assholes. Like the Ukrainian government, obviously they didn't choose to get invaded by Russia, so they didn't necessarily start the war, but they're not innocent, they're not good guys. Uh, the Ukrainian military actively recruits actual fascists, like actual Nazis, and there are even entire units of the Ukrainian military that fly under fascist banners. That's not to say that every single person in the military is a fascist. You know, some of them are just regular people who join the military for whatever reason. The government of Ukraine openly flirts with fascists, from what I hear. I'm not going to go so far to say that the country itself is full-on fascist, but that element definitely exists within the country. And before this particular conflict happened, before the invasion, um, those separatist movements in those two highly Russified, those like highly Russian regions, you know, instead of allowing those territories to have a chance to exercise their right to self-determination, instead of them being allowed to vote on whether or not they want to remain a part of Ukraine or leave and join Russia, instead the Ukrainian state just sent in their army and just smashed the separatists up. So Ukraine isn't this unified entity with a cohesive set of motivations and interests. So if you say, like, I stand with Ukraine, you're standing with something that doesn't exist. You need to be specific about who you're standing in solidarity with, and that should be working class people. Another thing we kind of have to be careful of is when we say something like Putin invades Ukraine, just like when we say Russia invades Ukraine, you know, obviously everybody knows what you mean when you say that. But uh, when I hear Putin invades Russia, I imagine like Putin like getting into like this little tank that he keeps in his garage and he just like personally drives down to the Ukrainian border and just rolls across like, no, that that did not happen. Uh, instead, he sent his entire or instead, I should say, they sent their entire military with all of their generals and their war ministers and whatnot to do the invading. And Putin, you know, the only reason he gets to be in power is because other powerful people in the country support him. That's true for all leaders, you know. There are people who are choosing to follow his authority. There's no such thing as an autocrat. Like, you know, Putin would not be able to pull this off without the support of a large number of people in the government and in the military. And it's highly probable that he did not make these decisions all by himself. He has lots of people around him who are like giving him advice and advocating for their own ideas and helping him brainstorm and things like that. And, you know, that's not necessarily a commentary on Russian politics. I'm saying that all countries on Earth act that way. You know, the ruling class of a country isn't going to tolerate a head of state who doesn't work for their interests. So 
it isn't just Putin who's doing this. It's the entire Russian ruling class. In times of war, it is more important than ever that socialists be wary of propaganda from their own ruling class in their home country. Extremely important, because if there's anything that the ruling class loves to do, it's to warmonger. It's to uh, paint a picture of a nasty, brutal enemy that we need to organize ourselves to fight. And if they don't have any enemies at that time, they'll make one up or turn a neutral party into an enemy. You'll hear a lot of talk from the capitalist press in the United States and even from government officials that Putin is a threat to democracy. And you know what? In this particular case, yeah, that's true. Invading another country and taking away their right to national self-determination, that's extremely anti-democratic. People in Ukraine have a right to decide for themselves how they want to define themselves politically, how they want to define themselves in the context of the rest of the world, you know? And that includes the main population of Ukraine, and it also includes all of the subpopulations, too. For example, um, the people in these highly, like, Russian areas, these breakaway republics, they have a right to vote on whether or not they want to stay in Ukraine or leave it. That is their right. For any government of any country to try to use the military, whether it be Ukraine using its military to stop the breakaway republics, or Russia using its military to uh, try to kick out the Ukrainian government, that is not democratic. That's like the exact opposite of democracy. <laughs> Just like how it was extremely anti-democratic for the United States to invade Iraq and Afghanistan and take away those countries' right to self-determination. But that's not what the U.S. ruling class means when they say that Putin is a threat to democracy, okay? If they cared about a country's right to self-determination, they wouldn't be engaging in the imperialist projects that the U.S. government is engaging in all the way around the world, you know? Nobody in the U.S. government cares about the national right of self-determination of peoples, okay? What they mean when they say that Putin is a threat to democracy, what they're saying is that there's some kind of unusually evil character about Russian culture and the way that their government operates. They want us to think that, you know, Russia inherently is somehow oppressive and somehow backwards, or that Putin is unusually evil among bourgeois politicians around the world. And of course they want us to think that Russia at this point in history is one of the United States' biggest inter-imperialist competitors, one of the biggest competitors for power on the world stage. And the U.S. ruling class has every incentive in the world to try to demonize them. And that's kind of ridiculous. Because here's the thing, like, Russia is a bourgeois democracy, just like the United States. So just like in the United States, the Russian bourgeois ruling class uses the state to democratically decide among itself how to conduct its affairs. Just like in the United States, people in Russia vote in parliamentary elections. They have a Duma, we have a Senate, but whatever. They're both parliaments. Um, and just like in the U.S., it's bourgeois democracy, not democracy democracy, not workers democracy. It's democracy for the quote-unquote oligarchy, for the ruling class. 
and regular people don't necessarily get much of a say, even though they do get to, you know, go to the polls and do that little ritual once every few years. And that's not to say that, you know, public opinion doesn't matter at all in bourgeois democracy. It does. But, you know, and they'll say, oh, well, it's not really a democracy because it's rigged. You know, Putin, you know, he intimidates his rivals and a lot of political opposition is threatened or scared away or imprisoned. And you know what? That's true. So you can argue that Russian bourgeois democracy is a lot less functional than American bourgeois democracy is. But it still does exist in Russia. And here's the thing. U.S. elections are rigged, too. <laughs> I'm sorry. They are. Now, like, what do you think the Electoral College is for? What do you think gerrymandering is for? Or the Citizens United court decision was for? What do you think corporate PAC money is for? Like... The truth is, all capitalist countries are like that. It is not possible to have true democracy under capitalism. As long as there's this minority of people who control the majority of the country's wealth, the health, safety, well-being, and the desires of regular people are not going to be what determines the decisions that are made. So to argue that like Ukraine is this nice, fine, upstanding, noble, democratic, free country, while Russia is this nasty, mean oligarchy, is completely ridiculous. All capitalist countries are oligarchies. Some bourgeois democracies are more functional than others, but those differences are in the details. And yeah, there are definitely instances in which people in Russia don't necessarily get the same respect for civil liberties that we in the United States have. You know, I know hearing from comrades in Russia that the government there is notorious for cracking down on protesters. But then again, you know, the United States imprisons a larger population than any other country on earth, including Russia. And that is both per capita and the total like gross number of people who are arrested altogether. Okay, so the United States government does not have the right to criticize any country at all for lack of civil liberties. So for Joe Biden to get up there and talk his bullshit about how, oh, this is a threat to democracy and freedom, he's full of shit, okay? The level of hypocrisy that we are seeing from the U.S. ruling class right now is absolutely disgusting. And it should go without saying, you know, the United States government sure as fuck does not have the right to criticize another country for conducting an unnecessary imperialist war. Just absolutely disgusting levels of hypocrisy. It's just disgusting. And even news sources that are going to claim to be quote-unquote objective are going to repeat these talking points, these propaganda points from the U.S. ruling class as if they're facts. So we really have to be careful, especially in times of war, to the propaganda that we're hearing. So with all of that in mind, how should we socialists respond to this situation? What should we do? Well, I think it might be helpful to first talk about things that we should not do. First of all, we're not we're not going to support one nation over the other. 
If someone comes up to you and says, hey, are you on Team Edward or Team Jacob? The correct answer isn't Edward or Jacob. The correct answer is both are annoying, but also they're not real and Twilight sucks. You know, it's a ridiculous question. And just like Edward and Jacob, Russia and Ukraine aren't real. We do not recognize these capitalist states or their authority or the authority of the ruling classes that created them, okay? Every single capitalist government in the world, the only thing that should ever happen to it is it gets overthrown and replaced with a socialist one, okay? And please take down those little yellow and blue flags. I know you mean well by putting them up there on your social media, but really no self-respecting socialist should ever be flying the flag of a capitalist state, whether it's your country or somebody else's country. And, you know, I realize that I have this little tiny flag of Ohio in my little pencil holder on my desk and I need to get rid of that because cringe. Yeah, we don't we don't do that. Okay, we, we don't recognize these states. We don't recognize their authority and neither of these states should exist. Once again, let me remind you that the Ukrainian government are not necessarily good guys. You know, Ukraine is a class based society with a quote unquote oligarchy you know, a capitalist ruling class that exploits, controls, and does violence upon working class Ukrainians every single day. And they do that with the violence of the Ukrainian government. Of course, all capitalist countries are like that, but the Ukrainian government are not good guys. They didn't start the war, but that doesn't mean that we should support them. So the other thing that we don't do here in the United States is ask the question, what should the U.S. government do? Um, you know what the U.S. government should do in response to the war against Ukraine? Um, absolutely fucking nothing. There is absolutely nothing that the U.S. government can do that will not make the situation 8 million times worse, okay? Every single time the U.S. government gets involved with foreign politics, it results in nothing but chaos and bloodshed for innocent people. Sure, maybe you can make an exception for World War II, but even in the case of World War II, you know, you think FDR really gave a fuck about, you know, working class people in France and Belgium or wherever who are suffering under Nazi occupation? You think he really gave a fuck about that? No, they were trying to ensure the United States' imperialist influence over Europe and over the rest of the world because the Nazis were interfering with the interests of U.S. imperialism. It wasn't an altruistic war, even if the enemy were bad guys. So there's absolutely nothing the U.S. government can do or should do. This means we also have to oppose military aid from the United States to the Ukrainian government. Once again, the Ukrainian government and their military are not good guys. And what does U.S. military aid usually entail? Well, usually it goes to support fascism. All right. They funded the rise of the Taliban. They are at least indirectly responsible for the rise of ISIS. Uh, you know, all the military aid in Israel, it doesn't go to protecting Israel from foreign threats. It goes to pay IDF soldiers to go beat the shit out of little Palestinian children. Usually when the U.S. is giving arms or aid to some sort of military entity, it's usually giving it to somebody who's really cringy and fascist. So we oppose 100% military aid from the United States. We do not call for sanctions on Russia, okay? Sanctions hurt working class people. 
every time. That's all they do. And it's really all they intend to do. And Biden will be like, oh, well, we're not sanctioning the Russian people. We're just sanctioning the government or we're just sanctioning their oligarchs. That's what they say, but that's never what happens. When you cut a country off from trade, that results in working class people not being able to get access to food, medicine, and various different consumer goods that they need and want. Okay, it directly results in a drop in the standard of living of regular people. It's not going to be Putin himself who's suffering under these sanctions. It's going to be fucking, you know, Sergey who works at McDonald's. <laughs> okay. It's not Putin who's, you know, not going to be able to get medicine for his mom who's dying of cancer. The U.S. always says they're not sanctioning people, just the government, but they are sanctioning people. And they do it on purpose because they believe that if they cause suffering to the people of a country, then that will somehow cause the people of that country to respond angrily to their government and start turning against their government. But really what usually ends up happening is it just makes those people angry at the United States and makes them like support their government even more. All it does is encourage nationalist false consciousness among the people of the affected country. And the U.S. government says in response to sanctions, oh, well, we make exceptions for food and medicine and necessary things. No, they don't. They might make exceptions for those things on paper, but U.S. sanctions are just so punitive to businesses and countries that break them that oftentimes those businesses and those countries just won't even bother to try to use those exceptions. They'll just avoid that country altogether because they don't want to make any mistakes on the paperwork. And, you know, there's a temptation to think, well, if it punishes Russia for this war, then it's worth it. If it gets them out of Ukraine, it's worth it. First of all, I don't see why on God's green earth you would think it's morally acceptable to punish the working class people of a country for the crimes of their governments, okay? Like, in what universe is that morally acceptable? Second of all, I can't think of a single instance in history, I could be wrong, but I can't think of a single instance in history in which sanctions actually inspired a government to change its behavior. Because once again, you know, it's not Putin and his rich friends who are going to be suffering under these sanctions. It's going to be ordinary people. And, you know, they don't care about the United States imposing suffering upon their people. They impose suffering upon their people every single goddamn day. We do not support sanctions. No sanctions. And we do not, under any fucking circumstances, call for more military intervention, whether from the United States or from NATO or for any other foreign country, okay? It's just going to add more bullets to the firefight. It's just going to escalate the conflict. And that's exactly what we want to not happen. NATO are bad guys, okay? Just because they're opposing the Russian ruling class and the Russian ruling class is a bad guy, that doesn't mean that the United States government and NATO are good guys. You know, NATO is an imperialist entity. It exists to allow wealthy imperialist nations in Europe and the Americas to exert dominance over poor countries. That's what it is. You know, for example, NATO participating in the invasion of Iraq. 
That's what NATO is for. And so if NATO goes into Ukraine, you know, they're not going to be there to to help Ukrainian people. They're going to be there to arrest Ukraine away from Russian control and to bring it under, quote unquote, Western imperialist control. And they're going to continue the same nasty exploitation that they've been doing in Ukraine for years. Ukraine does suffer under Russian imperialism, but it also suffers under Western imperialism too because of neocolonialism, as I was explaining earlier. And people in Ukraine are much worse off because of it since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, since all of this shit in Ukraine was privatized, since Western corporations were allowed to go in there and do their thing, standards of living in Ukraine have dropped drastically. Every single country in the former USSR suffered horrifically under the restoration of capitalism, but Ukraine especially was hurting, and it's because of Western imperialism. NATO, bad. We do not support any type of NATO intervention in this conflict. In fact, we should be calling for NATO to withdraw their troops from the surrounding nations, and we should be calling for NATO to completely and totally just disband. So if there's nothing that the United States government or its allies can do or should even attempt to do to help the people of Ukraine, what will work to put an end to the war? Historically speaking, there are two things that can end wars, and it's resistance from the people in the country victimized by the war and resistance in the country of people doing that war. So if you're a working class person in Ukraine right now, my heart goes out to you. You know, you don't deserve any of the stuff that's happening to you right now. Your job right now is to keep yourself, your family, and your community safe by any means necessary, whether peaceful or violent, legal or illegal. And what that looks like will depend on what your situation is. And so like that really needs to be your priority right now. However, don't underestimate the power that you have as workers to resist the occupation. Historically speaking, when a country is under like imperialist occupation, workers in the occupied country through strikes and collective action can do a lot of good work in disrupting the occupation and making the occupation expensive and inconvenient and, you know, just not worth the time and effort. So don't underestimate your power in this situation. But the people who I think are really going to be able to make a difference in this situation are the working class in Russia. Because only the working class in Russia can say to the Russian government, hey, either you shut this bullshit down or we'll shut it down for you. It's Russians who work in Russian factories who do the work that is necessary to facilitate this war effort. You can use your power as organized labor to shut this down. You can use your power and your numbers to protest and go on strike and just cause a huge headache for the Russian government. People in other countries, they can't do that. They can't exert that power over the Russian government that you guys in Russia can. This is your time to step up to the plate. And our job outside of Russia is to support Russian anti-war protesters in any way that we possibly can. This could take the form of maybe protesting outside of Russian embassies or donating to legal defense funds for protesters or calling attention to abuses against protesters by the Russian government. 
And we shouldn't try to guess about what Russian protesters need in order to get our support. What we should do is join international socialist organizations so that we can directly build those international working relationships. Once again, just let me emphasize, join international organizations. Join an org, join an org, join an org. If you want help doing that, if you don't know where to start with that, message me on Facebook or shoot me an email and I can get you in touch with comrades in your area. Once again, I don't feel necessarily comfortable at this particular time saying which organization I belong to just to protect my own privacy. But, you know, if you message me privately, yeah, we can chit chat. But that internationalism is just so important when it comes to anti-war protests. Only by directly organizing across borders do we really have the power to put a stop to these imperialist wars. In the United States, our primary responsibility, however, is to control our own government. Because, you know, only Russians really can control what the Russian government does. Maybe not control it, but exert influence over it. And when it comes time to get rid of the Russian government and replace it with workers' democracy, only the Russian working class is capable of pulling that task off. But the same is true in the United States. Only we in America can truly exercise power over the American government. And it's the only government that we really can truly exercise power over. So our priority in the United States needs to be policing our own government. Like I was saying before, we need to oppose any type of military aid from the United States government to any party in this war. We need to oppose any type of sanctions imposed by the U.S. government upon Russia. And we need to aggressively, aggressively, aggressively oppose any type of direct military intervention by the United States military or its allies. And we do that in the United States by being extremely loud, extremely organized, militant, and extremely disruptive. You know, if we hear that Biden's going to be doing sanctions or sending people to war, now it's time for us to go out onto the streets and say, absolutely the fuck not. You keep your grubby little imperialist hands out of this conflict. Once again, we can use our power, especially our power as organized labor, to say either you shut this shit down or we'll shut it down for you. Like a really good example of how this kind of international solidarity can stop wars would be the Russian Civil War. So like the United States, England, and a bunch of other quote-unquote Western imperialist countries all invaded the USSR immediately after the revolution. It wasn't really the USSR yet. Russia and its former colonies. And of course, the people in what was to become the USSR, their fighting and their bravery obviously cannot be understated in opposing these fascist invaders. But also, like, people in the United States, like, working class people in the United States played an extremely important role in bringing the war to an end. Like, for example, American workers refused to load war supplies onto ships. They said, no, we're not doing this. We're not supporting this war effort. World War I was brought to an end not only because of the Russian Revolution and the Russian working class refusing to participate in the war, but also German working class people played a really important role too. German soldiers and sailors were like mutinying and refusing to fight. They're saying, no, we're done. This is bullshit. Uh, you're not going to send us to die over something stupid. 
the German working class started putting up a huge fight and a huge resistance. What really brought an end to the war was the German Revolution. It wasn't really a full revolution, and it wasn't successful. There were many attempted German revolutions during this time, but uh, the German working class mobilized in great force, and they overthrew the Kaiser, and they chased him out of the country. So that is how the working class can end wars. So right now, our job in the United States is to police our own government and to stop our government from getting its hands involved in the conflict in any way. That is what we can do to help, as well as supporting protesters in Russia. And the other reason that we in the United States play an important role in this and why we need to police our own government and keep our own government in line is because... Let's not underestimate the role that U.S. and NATO imperialism plays in this conflict. Like I was saying, like Western imperialism has been having its grubby little hands in Ukraine ever since the restoration of capitalism in Ukraine. And it's resulted in massive poverty and degradation and standard of living for people in Ukraine. Also, like NATO countries in the European Union trying to influence politics in Ukraine definitely is contributing to the tension between the Ukrainian and Russian governments. One of Putin's, what we believe one of his motivations is for invading Ukraine is he's afraid of the expansion of NATO. So there's this inter-imperialist conflict going on between Russia and NATO. And so the way that we de-escalate this inter-imperialist conflict is to not engage in it. We in NATO countries, especially the United States, should be fighting to disband NATO. We should be fighting tooth and nail to disband this imperialist project. And you might say, well, then Russia will be able to get away and do whatever it wants. But no, it won't, because at the same time, the Russian working class standing in solidarity with us and we with them will be protesting what the Russian government is doing. Organize across borders, join international organizations. It's also really scary because the, of the quote-unquote West is also engaging in the same inter-imperialist tension with China, which is only going to result in suffering for working class people in China and elsewhere. So the way we end these inter-imperialist conflicts is we do not engage in them. Disband NATO. Pull NATO troops out of the country surrounding Russia and Ukraine. And it, and it sounds kind of like maybe I'm doing the opposite of what's needed right now. Like, oh, well, Ukraine needs our help, you might be thinking. But again, once again, Ukraine doesn't exist, nor does any other capitalist country. Uh, so when we're helping... Ukraine. Who are we helping? Are we helping the Ukrainian working class? Or are we helping the Ukrainian government? The more parties who get involved in this conflict, the worse the bloodshed's going to get. You end these conflicts by refusing to engage in them. Of course, you know, that's not necessarily true in all circumstances. For example, you know, working class people in Ukraine are obviously going to need to take up arms and defend themselves. The violence that's being enacted against them isn't going to go away just because they choose peace. 
the violence that's being enacted against working class people in every capitalist country isn't going to go away just because working class people submit to it peacefully. We Marxists are not pacifists, but we do believe that imperialist powers need to be kept in line and that when imperialist powers engage in conflict, all it does is make things worse. That's what we mean when we say no war but class war. No war between nations, no peace between classes. And let me be clear, when I say that we aren't siding with Russia or Ukraine in the war, you know, which we shouldn't be. As internationalists, we don't favor the people of one country over the people of another country ever. When I say we don't side with either Russia or Ukraine, what I'm not saying is, oh, we need to look at both sides. Both sides have a point and we should remain neutral. Things aren't black and white. No, we are not neutral. Things in this situation are black and white, and there is very clearly a side of this conflict that is the aggressor and a side that is innocent. But those two sides are not Russia and Ukraine. Those two sides are the working class on one side and the capitalists and their states on the other. Okay? We side with the working class every single time, and we side with the entire working class. And only the working class. I don't know. And maybe, like, the lower levels of the petty bourgeoisie. But, like, you can lump them in with the working class. Whatever. No war but class war. So it is not inevitable that this conflict will escalate. It is not inevitable. We working class people of the world, we have the power to nip this bullshit in the bud. But we have to be organized, we have to be militant, not just organized within our own countries, but organized across borders, actively collaborating with organizations in other countries, which we can do by joining international organizations. We have to be able to and willing to exert the power of organized labor to have leverage over the governments of our own countries. And, you know, it's hard. None of this is going to be easy. Like right now in the United States, the left is pretty weak. There's a lot of like revolutionary energy in the United States right now, especially among younger people. But we don't have the organizational power at this particular point to be able to really form a good fighting force. But thankfully, we're doing it. There's huge movements to unionize right now. People are joining leftist organizations in large numbers right now. And we're building up that power slowly. And honestly, like, if you want to help the international community, one of the best things that you can do in whatever country you're in is to fight capitalism at home, you know, because if you are fighting capitalists in your country, that's going to have a ripple effect. First of all, it's going to reduce the capacity of capitalists in your country to go do damage elsewhere. And also it's going to, you know, create a little bit of an opportunity where people in other countries, when they organize and they fight back, it's going to be a little bit less risky for them. Because if everybody's organizing at the same time, the capitalists can't punish us all. So one of the best things that you can do to help the people in other countries is ironically to fight capitalism in your home country. There's a particular quote from Trotsky on this topic. I highly recommend that you go back and read the transitional program where he explains this in the chapter on war. I'm going to see if I can find that quote. 
We, the international working class, have the power to stop this conflict from escalating and to stop imperialist wars in the future, but it's not going to be easy. And we have to do that hard work of organizing and being militant and bold in our demands. So uh, yeah, no war, but class war.